This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Come on inside. Come inside. Keep making room. Come on. There's still more room. Keep moving over. Move over. Make room for the people coming in. Come on. Keep squeezing in. Come on. All right. We're, we're there. We're there. Welcome to episode 90 of the Clock Dodgers podcast. I am your host, Neil. I have a guest with me today, a returning guest, none other than Ian McLaughlin. You know him if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast. He is a PhD student in neuroscience. Um, I first uh, ran into Ian on Periscope, uh, which is the uh, video streaming app where you can kind of conversate with people through... uh, through the app itself. And so he's on there a lot and he's communicating with people through there and connecting with people. He actually even lets you call in. We talk about it a little bit on the episode, but um, he's, he's a PhD student in neuroscience, really smart dude. Uh, and so the conversations are always um, really enriching. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot that we learn in these conversations with Ian, a lot of interest and stuff discussed. I like bringing Ian on and people like Ian because uh, as you guys know, mental health is a big thing in our lives today. And uh, addiction and these kind of things that uh, maybe we don't fully understand yet, or um, that we that we maybe we do have a good idea of some of these things. But he always kind of sheds light on those things. He makes it interesting. He makes it uh, fun, as fun as it can be in certain topics. But we get to go deep with Ian all the time, and 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 go really deep into good topics and conversations. So I always enjoy Ian coming on. Um, for you guys who like to look at the guests before you listen to the episode, if you're not familiar with him, you can find him at, at underscore anthropoid. That's A N T H R O P O I D. Whoo, some letters there. That's not an easy one. It's not an easy one. <laughs> Definitely check him out there, though. Um, also, I highly recommend his podcast, which is Wired to Be Weird. You guys know I only bring on guests that I really feel like um, are good conversations for you guys, have good information for you guys, and I would never recommend their, um, obviously, I wouldn't recommend their podcast or anything if I didn't believe in it, if I didn't enjoy it. Uh, and his podcast is fantastic. So Wired to Be Weird is the podcast you want to subscribe to, and you can find that on all the different uh, podcasts and platforms that you can find Clock Dodgers on. So go check that out for sure. I always appreciate you guys supporting those guests that come on the show um, because I'm a big fan of those people. I'm good friends with those people, and I want you guys to be as well because we're all family, right? Um, So go do that, please. Before we get into the conversation, I do want to mention No Halftime, which is a daily fantasy sports app where you get to play player versus player matchups, and you can win yourself a lot of money. Or at the very least, have yourself a lot of fun. You can use the promo code CLOCK, C-L-O-C-K, when you sign up. When you make your first deposit, you'll get a 50% bonus up to $50. You can't lose. You can't lose. Well, you can lose. I can't say you can't lose. You can't you, you can't lose using the promo code. But you certainly can lose on the app. <laughs> so what I advise you to do is brush up 
before you start playing on there, listen to more episodes of the Cloud Dodgers podcast. Follow us on social media. We give tons of tips and stuff uh, for no halftime. So uh, no halftime, the, the sponsor of the Cloud Dodgers podcast, uh, one of our favorites, right? We love we love no halftime. So I, I highly suggest you guys check it out, download it, use the promo code, tell your friends and family about it. It's a lot of fun. And it doesn't have to be just football. I say football a lot because it's what I'm you know, it's what we're in right now. And it's what I really enjoy. But basketball's on there now. Basketball season's just kicked off. Um, baseball, when it comes back around, all, all different sports. So check them out. And one other thing that I don't want to fail to mention before we get into the conversation, uh, for you guys who are listening, if you've been listening since last year, you remember we did this Toys for Tots um, charity fundraiser type thing. Well, we're doing it again this year. So I've joined up with guys from uh, Break from the Grind podcast and... Fancy football breakdown this year. Um, guys I've been talking to, we've, we've connected through the Fancy Life app. Uh, so if you guys are familiar with that, what, what, what I basically want you guys to do here is um, we did this last year. We're going to do it even more bigger this year as far as um, I want to get more stuff seen to you guys as far as the process. So as far as Periscope is concerned, uh, Instagram, things like that, I, I want you guys more involved in it. Um, so if you, do, if you could just donate... Anything helps, literally $5, a dollar, whatever you can give. What I'm going to ask you guys to do is just go visit the website, um, which I'm going to have it up on, on my Twitter and my Instagram. So go to either one of those, follow me on those things, and you'll see the link there. And when you click the link, you just go straight to it. It's on youcaren.com. Uh, and like I said, you go to the, to the uh, social media. Through my social media, you'll find the direct link. So you want to do no searching or nothing. But we're just trying to raise a lot of money. And it goes to to- Toys for Tots 100%. We don't take anything or nothing like that. Um, and it's really good. Last year was a lot of fun. Um, it, it, it's so powerful when you do these kind of things because when we were like shopping, there was people coming up to us giving us money or, you know, getting excited about what we we're doing. So I, I really would love it if you guys can get involved. It means a lot. Um, if you guys, when you donate, I believe you can mention like your name and leave a little comment or note if you want. Um, if you do that, what I'll be doing is I'll be picking random people who leave, uh, let's say leave hashtag clock Dodgers. And if you do that, I'll be picking random people from that list to win prizes. I'm not going to say what they are. I'm not going to go on the record and say what prize they are, but I'll have things to give away. Um, so if you put hashtag clock Dodgers, uh, when you, when, when you donate, you'll get automatically put into a raffle, but there's raffles that we're doing also just, um, so you guys know for like, uh, Le'Veon Bell signed helmet and we'll have more things too. So it's just a lot of fun. It's for a great cause. I love it. If you guys can do it, I really appreciate it. I don't want to hold you up from the conversation anymore. We'll talk about this again more on the other side of the conversation. Again, the guest today is Ian McLaughlin. Check him out. It's a great conversation. I'll see you guys on the other end. Let's go. Cannot play with him. Cannot win with him. Cannot go with him. Can't do it. Welcome back to the Clock Dodgers podcast, Ian. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I appreciate you joining me. I always, I always enjoy when you come on because 
we have this chance to talk and I come away with a bunch of information where I can use in other conversations and sound smarter than I am. So it's always, <laughs> it's always helpful. <laughs> good. Mission accomplished. Yeah. How is, uh, how's Pennsylvania, man? Everything good over there? Yeah. Everything's great. Turn into winter, which is my favorite uh, season. So I uh, can't complain. That's good. So you just, I just seen a, one of your periscopes. You just got back from Washington. Were you there for like pleasure or was it science related? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was sort of science adjacent. <laughs> um, so it was the first time that, um, a bunch of candidates for, um, federal office who are scientists have ever gathered. Um, and they have like a bunch of strategic support, um, as well as like campaign support in general. And so it was like, it was basically just a chance to get to like interact with a bunch of scientists who have like, who've just decided that they want to, you know, have a, represent a bigger role of science in the federal government nice so it's important so it was a little fun kind of probably but it was in the name of science so it's yeah i mean it was it was pretty chaotic <laughs> i mean there was something like 80 people in like one house oh wow <laughs> in like it was kind of a small house and it, yeah it, it was it was really cool very interesting um but uh yeah pretty chaotic <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool well i mean anyone who you know who's listened to our talks on here um you know they know that we'll jump around kind of from topics to different unique situations um and you know, the one thing I kind of wanted to start with you, I, when I talked to you, you know, on the, uh, on Twitter, I had mentioned to you that, you know, the Aaron Hernandez situation, which, right. you know, he's, he's a guy that most people know for his, you know, for what he had, his, his skills on the football field. But, um, the, you know, the reason I want to discuss him with you was, um, nothing to do with football. It was more so that, you know, what he allegedly did off of it and kind of his, his end of his life, um, and like I said, I don't, I don't want to get too much into, you know, the situations themselves and I don't want to talk about all that kind of stuff, but more so the report that came out last month, I think it was, uh, from Boston university about his, his brain. Um, did you see any of that at all? Yeah. Yeah. So when it came out, um, you know, it, it would come up when I would, um, live stream. Um, and so, so I, I just decided I, I needed to familiarize myself a little bit more with his history. And, um, it, I mean, it sort of became clear. I, I wasn't as familiar with, with these sort of incidents, but, you know, in 2007, 2013, you know, basically in the years leading up to, um, to his, uh, to this finding, you know, he had a history of a bunch of sort of violent altercations and impulse control problems. Um, and then when, um, when it came out that he had basically stage three of CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, it sort of became clear that there, there must've been a relationship between that kind of brain trauma and, you know, the, the things that, that he had, um, that he, he, the incidents that he had been associated with. Right. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you because obviously, you know, we're not looking for an excuse for this guy and what he's done or anything, but, um, you know, CTE is fairly new to, at least to the media and what people hear about and read about, um, some people who maybe weren't obviously studying it and researching it and things like that. Um, I mean, do we have a lot of like, um, history to go off of that, you know, something like that could kind of, I mean, obviously there's different things in life with, I'm sure, uh, he could have allegedly done things with alcohol or drugs or, you know, steroids, even with athletes, it happens. Right. I mean, um, is there, it could this have been some kind of cocktail of combination of things that could have led him to this, do you think, or you think it's not even, you know, realistic to talk about and discuss with CT and his actions? I mean, honestly, you know, as you, as you say, right, we're becoming more and more familiar with what CTE really is. I mean, you know, in, in the past, it was called, it was sort of known that people who um, engaged in contact sports would sort of develop these kinds of cognitive issues. I mean, it used to be called um, uh, uh, 
uh, dementia pugilistic, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so it, it was, it was sort of known that, you know, people who, who would experience, you know, repeated trauma to the head would develop these problems. Um, uh, but only recently has it been evaluated or has it been shown that a very large percentage of former NFL players will develop CTE. And so, for example, there was a study that showed 87 out of 91 tested former NFL players. Um, they tested positive for CTE. And then 131 out of 165 people who just played football seriously, like either professionally, semi-professionally, or like in college or even in high school, um, tested positive for CTE. And then a more recent study came out that showed remarkably that 110 out of 111 former NFL players were found to have had CTE. And since we don't really know who that last remaining person was, we don't really know why that person might not have developed it. Right. But it's just becoming clearer and clearer that this is a significant issue for uh, people who engage in contact sports. So is it, um, as far as CTE, just before we change the subject, I know it's not really something that you focus on entirely with, with, your, with your research and whatnot. But um, is there a way from, from the what, little that we know, I guess, at this point to avoid CTE as far as like a certain age to start doing these things at or, um, you know, any way to avoid it, like taking a break from certain things? Or is it just it's too much of a mystery still? I mean, as far as I'm aware, there aren't a lot of studies that have shown like successful ways to prevent the development of CTE, right? And so kind of the point, the problem is that CTE requires time to develop, requires, right. you know, repeated um, subconcussive uh, injuries to, to the head or concussions. Um, and so, you know, the the simplest thing would be just stop engaging in whatever is causing the, the head trauma. But of course not, you know, that's sort of an unrealistic prescription. And so the only um, study of which I'm familiar has shown that if you essentially immobilize the head following some kind of trauma to the head, uh, trauma to the head, that that has been associated with a reduced, uh, a reduced likelihood of developing CDE. But, you know, there, it's going to take some time for us to, to really understand, you know, useful strategies to prevent the onset. Right. And I know there have been instances where, you know, the brain and, you know, maybe an issue with it of some sort have been used in cases, kind of like kids, like a murder case or something like that. Um, is, is that, you know, going to be something we see more of, you think, in the future? With, oh, absolutely. You know, in courts yeah, yeah. There's no, I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying in courts and in trials, will we see more of that being used as a reason for things that are being done and happening? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, um, you know, I, I don't have like, like a list of examples that it's been brought up, but I mean, it, you know, lawyers are increasingly using things like fMRI scans, basically brain scans to, to essentially argue that, you know, my client ought not be culpable because there was some, you know, brain disease, um, that compelled them to, to commit these, these acts. And, um, in fact, that has, um, basically spurred this really, really contentious debate within neuroscience as to whether or not that evidence ought to be considered legitimate um, and whether or not the justice, um, you know, the judicial system is really well equipped to successfully evaluate the validity of those claims. And then, of course, you know, it, it very rapidly descends into a discussion of whether or not anybody has should ought to be considered culpable or punished for these acts right because you know a brain disease is just one very specific um expression of of the relationship between you know something occurring in the brain uh being associated with some horrible act right and so you know that that's a long conversation that we can have but the short story is yes i mean there are even like uh, uh departments of neural law that are emerging among certain universities. And, you know, the university of which I work 
is one of them. Wow. And I think you, you may have mentioned it on your last podcast, something about that, right? With um, even addiction, some, some calling it a disease and then, um, you know, whether they can, how they can proceed moving forward with that, whether it is a disease, whether it's not, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that in the last podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, that is another very contentious debate. And it is sort of related, right? You know, just how in control of our actions are we? Um, and there is a very contentious debate within neuroscience as to whether or not addiction should be considered a disease or a disorder. And there's a very interesting history to that debate, um, which, you know, I'm happy to go into. But um, more recently, uh, a pretty well-known neuroscientist, um, the chair, I believe, of, oof, is it psychology at Columbia University? Um, his name is um, Carl Hart. Um, he has argued that not only is addiction not a disease, but it's prejudice to claim that it's a disease. Um, and uh, but then, of course, there are, you know, there's NIDA, for example, the Nas National Institutes of Drug Abuse, which is a part of the NIH. Their whole like foundation is that addiction is a, absolutely a brain disease. It's called the brain disease model of addiction. And so, yeah, this is clearly a contentious de debate, much more contentious than it might seem. Uh, and so. So, yeah, yeah, that's it's definitely related. A lot of a lot of. Lot of uh fighting going on in the in the brain science world <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't think about it you know but it's funny that there is yeah dude i mean like like so for example i'll bring it up with you know so i my phd work is focused on understanding the sort of mapping out the circuitry in the brain that's associated with addiction as well as with sort of anxiety and mood in general and so i'll bring up this question um with my colleagues you know and say like what do you think and while most of them haven't really thought too much about it when I start that conversation, there are very divergent opinions and it got pretty heated at a certain point. Like, how could you possibly think that it's a disease or, you know, and then others being like, how could you possibly not, you know? Um, and so, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something that's probably going to be gamed out a lot more in the coming years, but I mean, it's been a debate for, for decades. Wow. That's so interesting. And I guess it should be. And I guess this is probably, I'm assuming it's a stupid question. I have no idea. I think it's a stupid question, but like, what's the difference in the, in the brain itself between stuff like CTE and then, say, addiction or uh, even depression? Like, is one chemical and one's physical? Is that what it is? Or what's, like, the difference there? That's definitely not a stupid question. Okay. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, because it's very complicated. I mean, so some people in, in my position would argue that there really is no significant difference, right? That, you know, whether or not, you know, something that's chemical in the brain is something that's physical. Right, right. Um, it's just a question of how obviously physical is it, right? So, for example, you know, a brain tumor, right? That's a very obvious physical manifestation of, of a disease, right? But, mm -hmm. but addiction, some would argue, is associated with, you know, you've inherited certain uh, genetic predispositions to enjoying the effects of, let's say, morphine. You know, some people hate morphine and some people really enjoy morphine or oxycodone. Right. And so some would argue that given the fact that we know that there's a relationship between a, a, an inherited set of genes and an increased risk of developing addiction, then really what's the difference, right? Um, but then others would argue that, well, the difference is that, you know, things like depression or things like, like addiction require for the environment to intervene, right? So for example, you know, some, some folks who develop um, depression, they were severely traumatized as a child. Or of course, in the case of addiction, right, you're never going to develop nicotine addiction if you've never been exposed to nicotine, right? <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> um, and then, but then the, you know, the defense to that is, well, many tumors require for there to be exposure to some, you know, mutagen, exposure to too much ultraviolet radiation, for example, or, you know, just some toxic environmental component that then is what causes the tumor to develop. So these are very complicated uh, debates. 
Interesting. So, okay. So I guess my question wasn't stupid. So that's a good thing. Not at all. <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, before we get off of like the, the gloom of these, these, these things really quick, um, with, with stuff like what just happened in Vegas with the, with the shooter and, and that unfortunate stuff. And then you got people who like commit suicide and things. I was always wondering, like you, you hear with these things when they happen, um, people who either knew them or, you know, were familiar with them. They say, uh, you know, I didn't see this coming or, uh, you know, she, he, he or she was really happy. I can't imagine that this, you know, that they, that they would do this. Um, is it really possible for things like that to go so unnoticed by people around them or are we just ignoring things? Well, honestly, yeah. So, I mean, I, you're referring to, you know, Stephen Paddock who, who committed the, the yeah. atrocity in Las Vegas. Um, and you know, we're still learning about, about him. He, there's, it, 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 it there's not a lot in his past that would seem to have been very many red flags. I mean, like, you know, I think the only recorded incident with law enforcement um, before that was like a minor traffic citation a few years ago. And, you know, some would argue that, you know, a, a proclivity towards gambling might be, you know, uh, a red flag that somebody's developing something, you know, in their brain. But he had evidently been playing, you know, video poker for tw over 25 years. Yeah. And so it wasn't like there was this unusual uptick in risk-seeking behavior or like impulse control problems that we're aware of. Um you know, and, and there's, you know, the fact that he was a recluse, but a lot of people are reclusive. Right. right. And, you know, and so it's just that there's not a lot of obvious um, uh, red flags. And as a result, you know, right when I, I sort of um, started learning about uh, or, or, you know, reading about his, his, his history, it sort of reminded me of another atrocity um, in the 60s committed by somebody named Charles Whitman who, um, he, like, he was, you know, similar. He was described as somebody who, like, rarely lost his temper. He was described as intelligent. He, you know, he went to UT Austin for mechanical engineering. And while, you know, there was some, he wasn't a particularly stellar student there, like, there really wasn't any, you know, um, any flare-ups with law enforcement, or he wasn't, like, particularly violent. But then, um, you know, he, he, in 1966, the day before the shooting that he committed, he killed both his mother and his wife. Um, and then the next day, he climbed to the observation deck at um, UT Austin and killed 17 people, wounded 31 people over the course of 96 minutes. Wow. Right. And, you know, they, like it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and kind of ghoulish story. But, you know, for example, he, um, he left a suicide note that had some really strange quotes. And so one of them was, um, quote, I, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to this type, um, to, to this, uh, uh, to type this letter. I'm sorry. And then quote, um, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. And then after, um, the, the you know, after the shooting, after autopsy, his brain was evaluated and it was shown that he had um, a, a brain tumor surrounded by widespread areas of necrosis with vascular malformations and so on. And so while we can't really know if that was what was responsible for this incredible increase in violent thoughts and so on, um, you know, given the location of all that pathology in the brain, it, it really does make it difficult to believe that there wouldn't be some relationship. And so in the case of, of uh, Paddock, Right. Um, evidently, a um, the some uh, information uh, from the autopsy has been released, but I think we're still waiting for a more comprehensive report that would include things like toxicology and deeper analyses of, of his biology. Gotcha. But again, it's just like 
they're just, it, it doesn't make sense. And um, in the case of Charles Whitman, okay, maybe the brain tumor might explain this. In the case of Paddock, it's like, yeah, it's hard to understand. Yeah, it is. And and, and I guess I just asked because even like, you know, I guess every, every, I guess one of the important things to understand is that with these kind of mass, you know, killings or even suicides or, or any of these kind of things that every situation is, is, is literally its own special case, right? I mean, even when, you know, people commit suicide, as horrible as it is, like some people have the whole world in front of them. They have money, happiness, love, but they still do that. Like, but each case is so individualized, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, oftentimes when um, a celebrity is found dead of an overdose, for example, you know, it, it, everybody, the, the immediate thought is how could you, you know, that person possibly have been in such a situation that they would even entertain the notion of using these dangerous right. drugs. And it's because, you know, the relationship between, you know, addiction, mood and, you know, the environment, well, the number of relationships are, are, Massive, right? These are complicated um, interactions between, you know, somebody's genome, somebody's brain architecture and the environment. And so, you know, and it is so difficult to understand the experience of somebody who has, a, you know, a, a, a psychiatric illness that you don't have. It's so hard for somebody who's never suffered from depression to understand what depression is like. Right. And similarly, you know, the same story with addiction. And so, um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to explain the, you know, this abnormal behavior, um, particularly because it's so hard for us to, to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes. Right. Yeah. And that's what, you know, ends up happening most of the time is you just try to understand it. And and like you said, unless you're that person, it's just, you know, not easy to do. Um, try, you know, obviously, like I said, so whenever we talk, it's, there's so many different things to talk about. So I'm going to try to jump to different things really quick, just to kind of switch up because there's so many things I want to cover. Um, so, you, you talked about on your podcast on, on the um, the last one that you released on the Wired to be Weird podcast. Um, you talked about a funny story about MDMA or ecstasy, as most people know it as um, that kind of a scandal around it. I wanted you to kind of talk about that because I always think those things are interesting because it's, you know, people for some reason we like scandals and we like drama. And so I feel like it's something interesting to talk about. So would you share some of that with us? Sure. Yeah. So. Um, so basically, this revolves around um, one, one of or the main study that was used to justify um, rendering MDMA as illegal as it is today. And so essentially, th this is what prompted Congress to pass something that came to be known as, as the Rave Act, right? Uh, which, you know, it's kind of cute, right? It, 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 it's a, an acronym, stands for Reducing Americans' Vulnerability to Ecstasy Act. And it's, you know, because MDMA was becoming particularly popular among people who went to raves, you right, know, like right. <laughs> underground dance parties. Um, you know, they, they were trying to be cute there, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the short story is that this paper was published in one of the most important journals in science, um, called science. <laughs> and it was about the effects of MDMA on the brain, right? This was in 2002. And the, the, the author claimed that they had identified substantial neurotoxicity induced by MDMA, right? And, and, uh, he had, um, nailed this down to its effects on dopamine levels and, you know, that that was in, an important finding. But importantly, it contradicted the findings of the rest of the field. So other scientists had found that MDMA is not associated with that kind of toxicity. Um, and, you know, there was a back and forth. There were scientists who were questioning the, the um, validity of those results. Um, but basically, it came out <laughs> essentially a year later that that study had actually been using methamphetamine. Wow. Which is known to be toxic, known to be toxic due to dopaminergic activity rather than MDMA. 
But still, that didn't stop, you know, that, that didn't cause Congress to, to review the validity of the act that they had just passed. Um, and essentially, that law, or I don't know about that law, but this stance of the government, um, the, the perspective that they have of MDMA really hasn't changed, despite the fact that that law was based off of essentially scientific, you know, misinformation. Right. <laughs> um, and this involved a former director of NIDA who was basically saying like, you know, this proves that just one night of, of MDMA use is like playing Russian roulette with your brain. <laughs> wow. um, and so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very, still very controversial and it caused, um, the scientific community to become very, very critical of that journal science. And then of course the, 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 um, the, the former director of NIDA and so on. It's funny because uh, our country and science and drugs kind of a long history with stuff like that, right? Like with, um, you know, either bad information, um, not all of the information to kind of like either outlaw things, make them worse than they are. Even like marijuana, right? I mean, there was like this attack on drugs, attack on marijuana, and like they made it sound like it was, you know, the worst thing ever. do Do you feel like... What, what is the reason for that from our country? Is it, you think it's a mostly a money thing? Do you think it's a fear thing? Like, why do you think, um, you know, you mentioned even science gets cherry picked a lot to kind of win arguments one way or the other. Why, why do you feel like that happens so often with science? And, you know, what we think is like fact-based stuff. They kind of, if you, I feel like if you give a, a fact and you say, this is a fact from science, people run with it, right? I mean, it's very easy to just run with it because you're like, well, science, of course, it's gotta be right. So like, why do you think that happens so often with science and our country? <laughs> Well, there's an interesting history written by a guy named David Corbright, um, who's a, actually a historian, he's not, not a scientist, um, about basically the debate as to whether or not addiction is, is a disease or a disorder. And, um, you know, basically he, he makes, he outlines the relationships between the different sort of stakeholders in drug law. And, you know, scientists are just one of those stakeholders. You know, another very important stakeholder is law enforcement and another is, you know, uh, politicians. And the reality is that over the past few decades, politicians have found that um, drugs are have been a very effective campaign mechanism. Right. And so like like there's this really remarkable uh, video. You can see it on YouTube of George H.W. Bush, right, the first um, uh, president mm-hmm. Bush. Um, his first nationally televised video, right, after becoming president, he holds up a big bag of crack cocaine in the Oval Office. Oh, wow. That was essentially, <laughs> yeah, that was just, uh, uh, evidently recovered nearby in, in Washington, D.C., and spends several minutes talking about the war on drugs. And, you know, so, so the reality is, like, you know, particularly as you, you know, bring up cannabis um, and MDMA, obviously, and so on, it, it's not like our drug laws are really based off of science, right? I mean, sometimes when science um, can be used to sort of justify certain legislative action or certain campaign uh, uh, rhetoric, then it'll be used. But what if it's not useful from a political perspective um, or a law enforcement perspective, I, there's just not a strong history of science guiding, you know, changes or reform at the level of, you know, uh, legislation or law enforcement. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you know, you mentioned like even marijuana and stuff in sports. Um, it's often mentioned that like players will say, you know, they prefer, um, to, to, to smoke weed or whatever it is for their pain rather than painkillers. Um, and you know, it's obviously got this, you know, this black cloud over it from, you know, people's jobs, from sports organizations, culture, society, whatever it may be. Um, and it, it seems like, you know, we don't 
look at pain pills or these main man-made drugs the same way we look at those things, but they tend to be worse than weed from what a lot of people hear or read. Um, do you think drugs, I, I know that a lot of times there, you know, there are certain classes they're in, we can't even research them as much as we'd like or use them and apply them. But do you think that those things like, for instance, weed in, in, in this case, would ever win from a, a law standpoint, kind of win that battle um, if, if it's right? I mean, do you think it's right that it's better than pain pills or, you know, do you think it'll ever have a chance to actually win that fight or is it kind of never really going to be a, it's going to be a never ending battle, do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to be particularly optimistic about, you know, like rational legislation or, or right, you know, right. drug law reform. Um, but, you know, and, and cannabis is a particularly complicated issue. And, and we talked a bit about this on, on my podcast a, a while ago. Um, but the reality is like, because there's so much hyperbole regarding cannabis on both sides, you know, where, you know, the, the prohibitionists will say, you know, it'll cause you to develop schizophrenia and it's useless for everything and it'll make you lazy and stupid. Right. <laughs> like that's all not true. I mean, it's, it's, there's a kernel of truth there in that there are certain people who have a, a, a predisposition to experiencing psychosis after smoking pot, but it's a small population. We're, we're back to we like know a cherry lot picking, right? I'm sorry, what's We're that? back to cherry picking there in that situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then uh, on the other side, you know, and I get this all the time, the advocates of legalization of cannabis, oh, well, not always, but oftentimes um, uh, exaggerate, you know, the, the utility of cannabis. They'll say things like cannabis, it, you know, it cures cancer, it cures multiple sclerosis, it um, is, you know, a more effective pain uh, killer than, than, you know, the pharmaceutical painkillers. And again, you know, there are kernels of truth to those things. But they're all exaggerations, right? So like in and there are studies of the efficacy of cannabis in treating uh, uh, things like pain, chronic pain and so on. Um, but it's important to note that because, as you noted, cannabis is so illegal from a federal level, it's really hard to study cannabis. It's really hard to do good science when it right, comes to cannabis. Right. More recently, that's changing. But then but, you know, the the evidence that we have at our disposal is that in some cases, cannabis can be effective at reducing chronic pain. In some cases, it, it can in fact be counterproductive. It can actually exacerbate pain. And so the, and it, it's perhaps unsurprising when you learn about the physiology of the, the, the parts of our nervous system that cannabis interacts with, the, the uh, endocannabinoid receptors. Um, these are very, very complicated signaling systems. And so, and, and the genetics that, um, you know, will sort of inform or sculpt how somebody responds to a given drug, those are also extraordinarily complicated. And so it's it's just, it's overly simplistic to suggest that, you know, cannabis is more effective than pain pills for everybody. Um, and because of that complexity, because there's so much nuance to this debate, I'm not particularly optimistic that anytime soon we'll have more rational, you know, um, legislation around in cannabis. I mean, from my perspective, it should just be legalized for recreational use and regulated just like alcohol. Right, um, right. But because that's like sort of a non-starter at the federal level, um, yeah, it's hard to be optimistic. That's so strange. Um, I, I read this article today, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, today, um, about um, mushrooms and psilocybin and mushrooms. I don't know if, you, if you've seen this or not, but they were saying that it was like, well, I guess they did studies or research that was successful in treating depression to a certain degree. Um, I was kind of confused when I was reading though, because isn't psilocybin a psychoactive drug? Well, sure. So, I mean, you know, all of these drugs that we're talking about are psychoactive, right? So, I, I, I think you're, 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 you're referring to psychedelic, right, right? right? Psychedelic type stuff. Yeah. So, like, how does that help with other things when it kind of does other things? You know what I mean? Like, it's, I guess it kind of loses me sometimes when I read stuff like that. Um, 
so so yeah, I mean, so so magic mushrooms and, and psilocybin within magic mushrooms are indeed um, psychedelic drugs. Um, and we call it, the psychedelics are a class of drugs that includes things like LSD or acid, mescaline. You know, a lot of times these are drugs that we associate with the hippie generation in the right. 60s. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, they cause, they cause these, among other things, they cause these sort of classic visual distortions that are, that are called uh, psychedelic hallucinations, right? Um, and so because that's such a unique set of effects, you know, pretty much very few other drugs really induce those types of effects. Right. That's sort of considered, I think, popular to be like the primary effect of these drugs. But these drugs also interact with other parts of the brain that don't just regulate things like visual and sensory perception in general. They also interact with mood um, circuitry. And so um, fairly recently, there's been a sort of resurgence in the interest of whether these psychedelic drugs could have could could represent a sort of new strategy to target the, the brain circuitry that we know is involved in things like depression or PTSD. Um, and so, uh, you know, those studies are ongoing, but you're right. There have been this sort of like, uh, uh, this, this sort of trajectory of finding that, uh, there might be something to these drugs. There might be something to the use of psilocybin or, or, you know, other psychedelics in ameliorating the severity of depression, particularly in the cases of like, um, treatment resistant depression or, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, uh, in, in, in cases where other treatments have been ineffective. Right. Something like psilocybin, is that banned? Is that, it's a banned substance? Like as far as law wise, like, oh, absolutely. okay. Yeah, so, yeah. so, super so when something like that is, you know, you guys, they do these studies and they find that it does help in depression or where the case is, um, would that ever be able to be used by people or is that something that we can't use because of the, you know, the laws? Well, you know, so, you know, magic mushrooms, they're, they're a unique case because they're pretty easy to produce. (laughs) You know, it's not like LSD, like LSD is actually pretty difficult to produce. It requires some pretty advanced organic chemistry. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, perhaps a little bit easier to obtain uh, magic mushrooms. Right. Um, but, you know, given the fact that there are these efforts at, you know, um, at treating PTSD and so on with things like MDMA or things like psilocybin, and a lot of the evidence is positive, um, you know, I, I think there will probably come a point where once the evidence is so overwhelming, right, if, if the evidence ever does become so overwhelming that these are uniquely useful in clinical settings, I, you know, my only source of optimism would be when, um, at that moment, there might be a sort of a strong enough political contingent of folks who will just say, you know, this is very important to us. Mental illness is a very important issue and we want more resources. And, you know, once the clinical world sort of, um, adopts that perspective, again, assuming that the data or that the research, um, supports, you know, legalization, um, of the use of these medications or the use of these drugs as medications, then perhaps, you know, perhaps there will be a change in, in, uh, law. But as of right now, yeah, it's very illegal. And the only way that somebody could, um, could sort of pursue this in a sort of sanctioned way would be, um, or, or, you know, in, in a, in a, uh, in a condoned way, right. By, by the federal government would right. be participating in a clinical trial. That's been, that's given the okay by the DEA. Okay. Gotcha. I guess we'll have to keep waiting, right? We'll just have to keep fighting for those things. Um, sp- speaking of like your past podcasts and stuff, you you um you did ones on uh, Neuralink, man. That kind of freaked me out, man. They, <laughs> they, they kind of scared me a little bit because I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for you know a world where this stuff is real, like where people can read your thoughts or or make decisions for you and stuff like that. Um, 
obviously I recommend people go back and listen to those because you had two episodes on them and it was, you know, really in depth and, and lots of information and stuff. But, um, any, anytime Elon Musk gets behind something, I get a little worried because it's, if it's something I'm scared of, he's going <laughs> to, he's probably going to get it done. Right. <laughs> so, um, how, how, like as far as that goes, because there's so much to, you know, to, to unpackage with that, like I said, I, I recommend people go listen to your podcast for more of it. But, um, as far as Neuralink in itself or things like it, um, how, how far away do you honestly really think we are away from the stuff like that being possible? Like, for real, like where people are going to be able to use it. Well, so we should say, so Neuralink is yeah, a company <laughs> that, that, that was uh, announced by Elon Musk that the, the goal of which is to develop a whole brain computer interface. Um, and so meaning, you know, essentially uh, integrating technology into the, the, the physiology of the nervous system. And, you know, they've, they've made big, bold claims and they are very ambitious um, and so if, if it was just Elon Musk saying like, I'm going to do this, then I'd be like, okay, we'll see. Um, although you're right, you know, when he makes a claim, usually he does follow yeah. <laughs> through even remarkable things, but his board has some serious neuroscience firepower. Um, and I, I, I wish I had the list of, of people in front of me, but you know, these are people who are involved in well-regarded research in neuroscience. And basically the board has, you know, there's so many different ways to integrate technology into the brain. You know, there's things like neural dust or neural lace. Um, basically, there's like, you know, the injection of tiny little um, what would be like, kind of like electrodes into different parts of the brain. Or there's like the implantation of, an, of a, a mesh of electrodes. Um, and so who knows which one will take off if any one of them do. <laughs> but ultimately, the goal is to have a computer be sensitive enough to the brain, to the activity in the brain that it can then read that activity, decipher it, and then potentially allow for computers or you know, other brains that have these technologies to then interact with those implanted electrodes, whatever they may be. Um, in which case, you would, you know, the, the experience of a human in that situation would be so unlike what our day-to-day -day experience is that um, you know, it, it's almost it's hard to fathom what that would be like. And so when it comes to you know, when this might happen, Man, those predictions are are always wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I because it's it's such a monumental task to be able to measure more than just a couple neurons at, at one time in vivo. You know, I just I can't imagine it happening even within, you know, the next century. Wow. But okay. who knows? You know, all it will take is just like sort of you know some remarkable invention that then does enable, you know, this to happen very rapidly. And so, yeah, but I would imagine perhaps within our lifetime or maybe just after our lifetime. Oh, that'd be so cool, right? Um, when you when you think about stuff like that too, you think about like, you know, like you said, like, you know, the, if it gets into the wrong hands or, you know, what, <laughs> what people will do with it. There's so much, like I said, I recommend people go listen to your podcast because it was fun, both those episodes. So um, I don't know, it's just so so much stuff there. But like I said, man, when Elon gets behind something, I, I think it's gonna happen. So I can't, I can't doubt him. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also seen this thing today, um, on an article about, uh, brain stimulation. It was, I, I can read the big words here and try to act like I know, but, um, it was high definition, transcranial alternating current stimulation. I think I did pretty good saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah. but something, something about like turbocharging the brain and, um, and, 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 and I guess that the things that control the, uh, the learning of, of our brain, um, have you, are you familiar with all this stuff? I, yeah. So, I mean, th this isn't research that I do, uh, but transcranial direct uh, current simulation or, or, you know, alternating current simulation, th this is also a fairly contentious topic within neuroscience. Um, 
uh, and it's 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 been contentious for a long time, but it was rendered more contentious when there was a study in um, in a cadaver. And it, it was a pretty remarkable scene uh, where basically these two scientists set up this cadaver and then implanted like hundreds of electrodes into the brain of this cadaver, right? And then they basically applied this transcranial direct current stimulation. Um, that, that was the platform they were using, which basically the concept is that you're applying these, these changes, th this current, electrical current, outside of the skull, out on, on the sort of surface layer of the skin, right on the scalp, basically. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to inject enough current so that you alter the activity of the brain, but not too much current that you start burning the skin, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, it's electricity. Right. And so what these, these two guys showed was that almost none of the current actually gets into the brain to alter neural activity. Um, the, and there are some arguments like, you know, the, the advocates of the platform will say, yeah, we know that. Like, it's not like we think we're changing the activity of the whole brain. You know, and all you need is a nudge here or there to have an effect. But then, you know, critics will say, well, that's that's like nothing, you know, like, you know, so that, that's that almost has no effect. Right. And so um, I am, am sort of pretty skeptical of of the ability for these platforms to have a very significant effect on uh, your sort of conscious experience. And mostly that's because. I'm a bit of a, of a chauvinist for deeper brain structures. These, you know, things like t, uh, transcranial direct current stimulation and alternate current stimulation, they're only able to affect the very, very outer layers of the brain. And that's very important, but it's really, it's missing out on the vast majority of the brain. Right. And some of the most important structures are buried deeply beneath the surface layer of the brain. So, so that's why I'm, I'm fairly skeptical, but I don't know, you know, I, I, I haven't seen this most recent um, thing that you're talking about. So maybe yeah. there was some crazy innovation that I had. <laughs> I mean, you would probably, uh, you know, obviously break it down a lot better than me. If I read it, I probably would be like, Oh, it's happening. And you'd be like, eh, not happening. So <laughs> I'll, I'll go with you on that one. Um, do you, do you feel the same way? Are you that, um, you know, questionable about stuff like nootropics, smart drugs, all that stuff? Is it all the same? Is it all fall in the same category for you? No, I mean, not, not in the same category. So, so nootropics. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to, to talk about there, but like, yeah. basically this is an informal category of supplements, right? Um, and they're not drugs or they're not pharmaceuticals, right? They're supplements. And as such, they're regulated differently than drugs. And so as a result, right, I could, you know, come out with this product like Ian's magical white powder, Ian's <laughs> magical charm powder that makes you more charming and more attractive. And so long as I don't, you know, try and get it marketed as a drug, and so long as I don't poison people immediately, right, when they take it, <laughs> I can sell that illegally. That's like, scary. <laughs> That's pretty scary. But, you know. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> but, so that doesn't mean that all of the nootropics are complete BS, right? Um, it's ju it just means that the standard of proof is much lower than it is for, you know, pharmaceutical drugs. And so for people who are skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry, you ought to be more skeptical <laughs> of the supplement industry. But again, that doesn't mean that it's all BS. And so, um, you know, for example, advocates of nootropics, and by the way, we should say nootropics are this category of supplements that are marketed to improve cognition right. or brain performance, brain health. And, um, you know, advocates of nootropics will point to very specific studies and say, you know, um, this study has shown that, you know, they'll point to a study, for example, that shows an effect in improving something called verbal recall in, you know, a majority, more than half of 20 people. And then advocates that, you know, the company that uses that study to sell their product will say, well, then here we go, right? This product improves your ability to speak. 
But the problem is that if you more if you were um, very scrupulous in evaluating what that research actually says, basically a lot of this research is like in a very specific population that are at like a sleep deficit or that are over the age of 65, right? Or at a nutritional deficit. And you know when it comes to like a clinical trial for a drug, right? That will ultimately involve thousands of people, whereas most of these studies for nootropics only involve dozens of people at best. Right. That's, it's crazy because, you know, I, um, there, there's like people that you, that sell these things, like you said, and they do their studies and try to, uh, you know, try to prove it as best they can, I guess. Right. Um, but there's people that like, you know, I hear and, I, and they talk about it and like, it's, they act like it's really working and I never know, like, are they trying to sell you something here or are these people legitimately getting something from this? Or is it just that, you know, that effect where you're taking something and they tell you it's doing something. So you think it's doing something, you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. The placebo effect. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, I think there are some benign, there are pl- probably plenty of benign actors in that world who really do believe that this product is having an effect. And by the way, it could very well be having that effect. And maybe we just don't have the science to reveal that effect yet. Right. Um, but because that data doesn't exist, you know, I'm not just going to believe somebody just because I want to believe them. <laughs> yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, okay, so you're, you're a smart guy. You're way smarter than me. You've no, recently, I'm not. You, you are. <laughs> not. You are. Listen, That's when I hear you talk, I'm always like, ah, this guy knows so much stuff. Like, I don't, news, I don't know how you retain it and all that. But, um, you know, so, so it's probably easier to impress me with things that, than it would be for you. But, you know, from all your, you know, your research and all this you know, in-depth stuff that you do. Has there any? Has there ever been anything that I guess, for for lack of a better term, has blown your mind? Like when I hear you know scientists talk or you know physicists, and I'm like, whoa, they just blow my mind. Everything I hear. But like for you, is there th- is has there ever been a moment where you were like, wow, like you were actually like blown away by something, or is it kind of like, oh, well, you know, I can see that happening. <laughs> Absolutely, at at different levels. Like um, you know, so so most regularly, it's when I'm around scientists who just who are so excuse me, so obviously brilliant, you know, just the, the way that they, that they um, craft a series of experiments is so elegant and simple and what we call parsimonious in science. It's as simple as it could be to achieve and to, 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 to achieve the, you know, the outcome that you need. That is what regularly blows my mind. Um, it's very humbling. Right. But then in terms of just like the wow factor, like, whoa, you're like a sorcerer. <laughs> like the, it's really the people who are developing the new tools in um, new tools to do studies in neuroscience. So for example, like, you know, um, optogenetics or chemogenetics or, you know, um, the, these new platforms that enable us to ask questions that, you know, just five years ago, we never could have asked. Um, and so that's what really blows my mind. I mean, when, when people develop a technology that is just such a departure from what existed before, that it's just like, wow, okay, like you are playing at a different level. Right, right. So that's what that's what gets you going. Like, whoa, man. Because I always wonder that. Because I, I, you know, obviously, if I'm, I could just watch a YouTube video and someone say something, I'm like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So I was always wondering, like, look at Ian, surprised, shocked, you know, amazed by <laughs> stuff. Um, you know, also, um, Periscope, right? So you're on Periscope a lot. That's where I first found you, or, or seen you, or heard from you. Um, it seems like you know when you're on there, obviously, you're getting drilled with tons of questions everyone wants answers to. Um, Alzheimer's, dementia, that comes up a lot, like a lot, lot. Um, so you you get your share of, of those kind of questions. Um, I was recently at a a, a party. And there was a, a a friend of the family there and this person, you know, I was talking to them. I didn't know that there was any kind of issue. And then they asked me the same question like twice, like we never discussed it. And I was like, wow, that's scary. I see what, uh-huh. what's going on here, you know? Um, 
there's a lot of people who are dealing with stuff like that, right? With family members that are like that or, uh, or whatnot. Um, in that field of things with dementia and Alzheimer's and stuff, like what is, is there, has there been anything? Cause I know it's so much in that field. Is there anything to, um, point to that actually does cause those things or makes those things happen more often than not or anything like that? Or is it still kind of a mystery? Well, there's definitely still more. Well, we know a lot more today than, of course, we've ever known about dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which is the most frequent cause of dementia. Um, it is also true that there are the, the rates of diagnosis of dementia have increased really significantly over the past few years. And that's for for sort of predictable demographic reasons, right? You know, we have this sort of aging uh, demographic, the baby boomers, right? right. Where they're, they're getting up to the age where th- age-associated pathologies become more frequent, dementia being one of those. Um, and we do know a lot about some of the causes of dementia. Um, so, if, you know, we know about some of the earliest, if, if you picture the development of something like Alzheimer's as a string of dominoes, right? We know a lot about we can basically explain the second, third, and fourth, and so on domino, right? Okay. And in some cases, we can explain that first domino with genetics, right? But that, that's actually a small population within the whole population of, of folks with dementia. And so um, and so essentially, the, the strategy, and it's been super difficult for, for a variety of reasons to target that first domino, right, for, for sort of technical reasons and strange biological reasons um, that we can talk about if you want, but um, they're, they're sort of nitty gritty. But now the, um, the, the focus over the cor- in the history of neuroscience has been um, on treating Alzheimer's once it manifests, right? So somebody goes to the doctor, they, you know, are, are evaluated for dementia and um, they, they're diagnosed with, with uh, dementia and then they are treated, right? And so the, the majority of the effort has been to develop new treatments for that person in that situation. The problem is that over the you know several decades, there really haven't been really substantial innovations in treating it once it exists. So just now, just, just, just hold on one second. So when you say treating, obviously there's no cure. So when you say treating, do you mean like to slow it down or to kind of offset it a little bit? What do you, what do you mean when you say treat it? That's exactly yeah. Okay. So you slow it down, okay. treat the you know reduce the severity of the disease, uh, potentially try and reverse uh, the disease. Oh, wow, okay. that's where most of the efforts have been. But because it's been so difficult and some amazingly remarkable uh, uh, strategies have been pursued, you know, like it's like tricking your immune system to attack the things that are causing um, dementia, um, things like that, really innovative stuff. Because they haven't been particularly successful, now the strategy is geared more towards prevention. And so now more and more scientists are focused on that that exact question that you raised. So what is it that we can do to prevent dementia? Can we predict, for example, if you are at an increased risk of dementia? And if so, what are the strategies, be them pharmaceutical or therapeutic or whatever it might be, that would reduce your predisposition to developing dementia? And so, you know, there are things that are being evaluated like lifestyle factors, like, you know, um, how socially isolated are you? Or how much do you exercise? What kind of food do you eat? What's your you know, nutrition, your diet like? Um, and there's some, there's some studies that have been done you know, in years past focused on these things. But now I think there's going to be an increased effort to really try and parse these things out. Um, and so you know, I, I would imagine that in the coming years, we're going to learn more and more about, for example, the genetics that are associated with Alzheimer's. We know a bit about that, but there's more to be discovered um, as well as the sort of the environmental factors that, you know, sort of increase the risk of developing dementia. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely scary stuff, you know, until you like deal with someone who, who, who is dealing with it. It was, it was, I was like, 
I never really, to be honest with you, I don't really bump into a lot of people who have it or that I know of, you know, at least, but in this conversation it was so apparent and I was like, Whoa, like that was like, it was kind of scary, you know? And I felt bad for the guy and I felt scared. Like, dang, this is, this is real. This is really happening in front of me. You know, like I was like, wow, this it's is- devastating. I mean, and I think that that's also true for most psychiatric illnesses, right? If you don't know anybody that's addicted to a drug or you don't know anybody with depression, then it's, it's just, it's such an abstract concept. Right. And I think by the way, that's part of the reason for why people will oftentimes try and explain things like these massacres by saying, oh, they're just mentally ill. Right. When in reality, the vast majority of people diagnosed with psychiatric disorders never commit violent acts. And by the way, there are an increased vulnerability of violence. Right. In other words, they're more likely to be aggressed upon than aggressed. Wow. Um, and so, so yeah, these personal experiences, you know, can can totally change your perspective on, on an illness like like these things. Wow. Yeah, it's definitely scary stuff. But like you said, there's people hard at work trying to figure it out. And you, you did mention like when you said ways to prevent, possibly prevent it, possibly, you know, um, you mentioned diet. Is there certain foods? Because again, it kind of goes back to all these different ways to, you know, to sharpen the brain or to whatever. Um, is there any really real brain foods that like, you know, you guys would recommend or that you recommend that, you know, is, has been proven to really help the brain in any way, shape or form. And, and, you know, not even to prevent dementia, but just in general to help your, help your focus or attention or anything like that. I, you know, it, it's funny. Like it, I think you could call this, this podcast, like neuroscience is contentious because like <laughs> this is, you know, a, a heated debate within really within biology and, and bio biomedical science, um, for a very long time, the diet that was recommended by, you know, uh, research scientists and physicians alike was the Mediterranean diet or a sort of a tweak to that diet called the mind diet, which is kind of like a, a blending of two different types of diets. Um, and basically that diet revolved around nothing surprising. It revolved around green leafy vegetables, nuts and seeds, uh, lean proteins like, you know, poultry or fish, um, you know, un, uh, uh, unsaturated fats, things like olive oil rather than butter and animal fat. Uh, and then in the Mediterranean diet, it called for a glass of red wine every now and then. Um, but more recently, it's been shown that like a lot of the evidence that supported the argument that saturated fat is bad for you um, was not particularly the strongest evidence. Um, the one thing, and, and so as a result, I can't just say, oh yeah, the Mediterranean diet, just do right, that and you right. won't have dementia and you'll live forever. <laughs> right? Um, but the, the one thing that pretty much is, is pretty uncontentious is the fact that highly refined carbohydrates, in other words, like sugar, it's, it's really not good. <laughs> like there's really no good reason to consume carbohydrates in that form. Um, and it's probably the culprit for a lot of sort of public health issues associated with diet. Wow. Yeah. I guess sugar is just really isn't good for anything, huh? I mean, yeah. I guess it feels good or whatever, mentally or chemically, whatever in that moment, but it's just not good, man. Um, yep. sorry, it's so cool. So, I mean, we, we've covered a lot of the stuff that, you know, I definitely wanted to, you know, get out there and kind of go over. Um, like you said, it's a lot of battle in there, man. And, 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 and neuroscience, there's a lot of, a lot going on, a lot going on. You don't <laughs> think about it unless you dig in. Um, yep. uh, as far as, you know, with your, you know, like you said, you focus your, your research stuff on addiction and, and, and all these things. Um, is there anything, um, you know, within your research that you specifically do that on Periscope and podcasts and stuff that you don't get asked, but that you do want to talk about or that you feel like you wish more people would ask about? Huh? Oh man, that's interesting. I've never even thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, th there's one thing that um, is kind of difficult to to communicate because it you you, you almost have to like demonstrate it, and that is that um, 
you know, that I think that there is this expectation that, you know, that understanding the brain should be like other sciences, right? And so if, if we went to the moon, then we should be able to understand the brain. Right. And the reality is that you really can't make those comparisons. And, you know, and like I said, in the recent years, there's been the introduction of these new tools, some of which I use in, in my research that enables us to ask questions that we never could have asked, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and so as a result, you know, the, the delay between being able to ask those questions and then coming to practical, you know, uh, findings, you know, actionable findings in biomedical science, that delay is pretty substantial. Um, and so it's frustrating, but we need to have some patience when it comes to, you know, the work of scientists in my position and improving the quality of life uh, in folks who are suffering from things like addiction or, or depression. So it's just, you know, science is messy. It takes time. It requires for there to be mistakes that happen um, to then ultimately come together in, in, as a consensus and say, ah, uh, yes, sugar is bad for you, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, I know that that's not, and the reason it's it's hard to communicate is that like, well, show me, prove it, why? You know, we went to the moon, why can't you just do this? And it's like, <laughs> right. I, I don't know, it's the process that takes time. Right, okay, so you want us to know that there's a process to this, that it's, patience is important, man, and it's important in everything in life, really. Um, so, you know, I appreciate that. I just thought I'd, I'd ask, because, you know, a lot of times people are just constantly um, asking you for what they want and never letting you give what you want. You know what I mean? So I figured I wanted to ask that. Um, yeah, and I should say, like, one thing. So I, I've started recently doing, like, a live call-in where people can call a, a number that I put on the screen. And yeah. We have, like, longer conversations. And I have to say, that has really, I think, improved the complexity of the conversation. So, you know, I can get feedback from the person asking the question. They can tell me their story. Um, you know, like for example, in the most recent call-in episode I did, there was somebody who called in that was basically, he was being treated for back pain with, with opiates. And basically, you know, he was like an, a perfect example of somebody who's just taking the first steps down the road to addiction. You know, he was saying like, what's the problem with me just taking these pills that make me feel so good? Oh, you know, wow. what's philosophically wrong with that? And we would just go back and forth and back and forth. And it was just this perfect encapsulation of the, you know, what is the opioid addiction epidemic? You know, so many people in this country are making those decisions and having that inner dialogue. And so that has, I think, improved the sort of the, the depth of conversation. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one, you know, painkillers and opioids, and other it's a weird thing, like, and I guess everyone's different with it. I don't know what it is, but like even painkillers, like say you get a tooth pulled and they try to give you certain painkillers. Like I get nauseous from that stuff. And I always think to myself, how do people get addicted to these things? You know what I mean? I'm always like, what is wrong with me that I don't get what they're getting? You know, like, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, what is going on here? Is that uh, a brain thing or is that a body reaction? What is that? That I That's, that's an, uh, that's an awesome thing to bring up. And actually we're going to talk um, about that to a fair uh, depth in the next podcast episode. But basically what we would call that is that you've inherited a protection against opioid addiction, right? So wow. some people, yeah, they, they react like you, they, they get nauseous, they feel stupid, they, they're sort of just slow um, and, and dizzy. And like, yeah. yeah, there's no way that something that causes all of those things is going to you know, be super fun to do. <laughs> yeah. That's what, that's what I always think whenever I, I'm like, no, you can't prescribe this to me. I can't, I can't do it. I need something else. It's not going to work. This is not going right. to work. <laughs> and, and another example of that is called the alcohol flush or the Asian flush. Oftentimes it's called where some people, particularly people, it, it's particularly, um, uh, uh, prevalent in Northeastern Asia 
where just a small amount of alcohol will cause their skin, mostly their face and sort of shoulders and area, uh, area to f- turn very, very red, beet red. And then some of them will also get very nauseous. And it's almost like an immediate hangover. Wow. And so as a result, these folks very rarely develop addiction, uh, alcoholism. Um, and so, yeah, that is a brain thing. That is also, that's a genetic thing. Wow. Um, and we're learning more and more about why it is that somebody like in your position, why it is that you respond to, you know, hydrocodone or whatever with nausea, whereas other people, they feel better than they've ever felt in their life. That is crazy. And that's why I think the brain and all this stuff is so interesting, man. It's just so much, so deep. It's so, so much depth to it and so much to, to figure out. Um, one other thing before I let you go here is with Periscope and with your podcast and all these things, I mean, even with the call-in thing that you're doing now, I mean, I think it would be even cool in podcast form, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but did you ever see this happening? Like the the way social media or voice or video would be a part of, you know, your, your journey in neuroscience and, and the research that you do and what you're trying to achieve? Did you, did you ever see that happening, becoming so popular? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's crazy, right? I mean, that may be a wow moment for you, right? Like, this is people really want to hear this, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's continues to be surprising. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think because there is this opportunity, you know, th- there's some some recent studies by MIT that showed that, like, you know, in this country, there is such a polarization of where people are getting their information from. You know, certain people watch only certain channels and only, you know, subscribe to certain whatever magazines or go on, you know, certain websites, right? And others do completely different ones. And you can essentially live in a universe that is entirely insulated from a different universe in this country. And right. I think that when it comes to things like, you know, um, Periscope or, you know, platforms like Periscope, it, it is this opportunity to break through that polarization, break through that insulation, and have a conversation with people who, you know, for example, have never met a scientist in their life and probably never would. Right, right. You know, um, or people in countries where, you know, discussing things like, you know, mental health is tantamount to breaking the law, you know? And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that that perhaps is why this has been at least very rewarding for me and then hopefully rewarding for people who, who are on the, the viewer side. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's important what you do. You know, um, you know, a lot of people do podcasts for entertainment purposes or whatever, but you know, the fact that you're educating people and, and making it, you know, interesting or fun while doing, it, I think is, is super important. Um, and, and, and what I, one of the things I like about you is that you're not, um, afraid to discuss any topic or you don't shy away from things. Even I think I want to say it was a call in on your periscope where someone was mentioning like erectile dysfunction or something. And like, they didn't want to say it. <laughs> they didn't want to say it, but you were like, you can say it. I mean, you know, like you're not shying away from anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. It's funny, but you got good stuff, man. For, for anyone listening right now who doesn't do the periscope thing or your podcast or, you know, can you tell them where to, to find you, how to support you, your work, all that kind of good stuff? Sure. Yeah. So, so the podcast is called Wired to Be Weird, and it's on you know iTunes and Stitcher and a bunch of ones that I've forgotten what they're called. <laughs> um, but it's probably available on what, you know whatever platform you use. Um, and then I'm uh, at underscore Anthropoid on Twitter, and um, yeah, just connect. And uh, you know I I love talking about these things, so right. uh, feel free to uh, to contact me. And the username on on Periscope is the same as the Twitter handle, right? If they're looking for you there. Oh yeah, yeah. That's okay, right. good. Okay, perfect. And then I always like to ask you also uh, if people are looking to to help in, in neuroscience in any way, shape, or form, if they obviously haven't gone through the studies and things you have, can is there a place to to donate money or time or effort or anything like that? Well, I mean, for for me personally, not not 
at least not yet. Uh, I'm trying to think of ways that um, I could use that kind of support to product to more effectively deliver information. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still not quite there yet. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the sort of the endeavor of science, um, it, it's important to remember that the science that I do and the scientists, the science that scientists who are far more capable than I am do, they're supported by uh, uh, by the public, right? In other words, by taxes. And so, you know, when and I, I know it's like hard to like keep up with politics and stuff like that. But in particular, when when people talk about cutting the budget to the NIH or to the NSF or NASA or whatever it might be, that is essentially saying that people in my position are not going to get funding. Right. And so there will be fewer scientists asking these questions. And in, in the case of biomedical science, fewer scientists who are ho- you know hoping to improve the quality of life of you know people outside of science and scientists as well. And so, you know, just keep in mind that the budget for the NIH, the budget for the NSF, that is exactly what is used to generate these discoveries. Um, so, you know, just if, if you, you know, have a habit of contacting your representatives, uh, or if you don't have a habit yet, you should start one because they're working for you. Right. <laughs> you know, I would just argue you, sh- you should, you know, say that it's a, pro- a personal priority that biomedical science continues to get funded. Um, yeah. <laughs> and let me actually one thing then before you go, like I've done um, things where say we'll sell t-shirts or we'll do some kind of charity thing. And I think I mentioned it to you when um, I wanted to do a donation, even no matter how small it is to like a mental health situation or whatever it was. I mean, I think I brought up the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation, um, which is where I donated the, the funds that we had to. But is there any like, you know, those kind of uh, foundations or anything that, that people that you feel really good about people donating to that you feel like, you know, do a lot of good with it? Or, um, or is it just more about telling your congressman and stuff like that to up the, the budgets? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that, that's that's a really interesting point. I wish that I had um, had prepared um, a good list. Um, you know what? Um Maybe you can well, get, one, maybe, maybe, get back to you. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe you can get back to me, and then when I post this up on, um, you know, on the website on cloudouters.com and stuff, maybe I can put that list on there or something. For sure, yeah, because there are odd, there are, you know plenty of organizations that are doing really important things. You know, wh- whether it be and and it's they're probably doing something that's important to you to to you know someone someone's personal experience, right. be it opioid addiction or you know MDMA like drug purification, making sure people aren't just you know taking toxic drugs. Um, or, you know, obviously just addiction in general. Um, and, uh, there are some great organizations and yeah, yeah, I'll get back to you, Neil. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, Ian, I, I appreciate it, man. I, like I said, it's always a fun, it's always fun talking with you. I got a bunch of new one-liners to throw at people now to sound like I'm smarter <laughs> than I am. So I appreciate it. Um, everyone knows where to find you. I, I highly encourage them to do that. And, uh, thank you, man. You have, a, you have a good day, man. It's my pleasure. You too. Thank you. Well, I'll be damned if you didn't come away a little smarter after that one. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Ian McLaughlin again. Guys, seriously, follow him on Twitter at underscore anthropoid, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-I-D. I like how that's like even the letters. You can just do two at a time and it ends perfectly. I like that. <laughs> follow him on there. Follow him on Periscope where you get a real um, great connection with him as far as if you have any questions and stuff, he'll answer them like directly for you. Um, so do that. Subscribe to the podcast, Wired to be Weird. Uh, Again, can't recommend it enough. And just, you know, follow him and everything and do what you can. Support uh, science, support neuroscience, 
um, all, all the things that he mentioned. Again, it's really important to us. We've done things um, for mental health, and we want to continue to do things like that. Uh, we've it, it's a big thing to us. It's a big deal. Mental health, addiction, understanding the brain, understanding the way we work. Uh, it's really important here to Clock Dodgers. So it's always nice to have Ian on. He'll be on again in the future. You can guarantee it. Um, if you do have any questions for Ian and you don't want to shoot over to him on Twitter or something because you're lazy, I understand. Uh, feel free to message me, email me, and uh, I can either get the question over to him whenever or I can use it for the next podcast. Just mention it somewhere in the email or on Twitter, DM, whatever you do, uh, and I will store that away and make sure we use it. Again, that's Ian McLaughlin. Thank you again for coming on, my friend. It's always a good conversation. Uh, for those who um, didn't hear it in the intro, maybe you skipped over it. I know how some of you roll. You don't, you don't gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta play that game. I know how some of you roll, skipping the intros and stuff. Um, com. you guys can actually follow the link on my social media. You'll see it tweeted somewhere or on Instagram. You'll see it mentioned. Uh, if you just click the link, uh, you can donate it's toys for tots. You'll, you're going to hear me talking about it a lot between now and when we, you know, officially close it out. Um, so all I ask is that you guys donate however you can, whatever you can, uh, I can promise you from someone who was involved in it last year that it was really impactful, really impactful. I mean, we went to the to the warehouse where they had all the toys. Uh, the Marines were there and they kind of showed us around and it was toys stacked to the ceiling. It was ridiculous. And like just to know the the impact that's going to have on kids is it's I don't know how to explain it unless I tell you to do it, you know. Um, and if you can't donate money, that's fine. Donate time, maybe um you know, volunteer to help out at the, at the places near you, just whatever it is. Toys for Tots is a great program. Um, but if you guys just go to my social media, you can click the link and, and donate right then and there. We're starting a little early just so we have enough time to, uh, you know, to get as much as we can. Last year, I want to say we did like almost a thousand dollars. So we're trying to do more than that this year. Um, uh, but the thousand dollars went a, went a long way. We, 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 we were like, little coupon cutters and stuff. I mean, we were doing everything to make it stretch, you know, to get as much as we could from it. So uh, it's a it's a good thing to do. It really makes you feel good. It's a great cause, and I highly recommend you guys participate. And, of course, nohalftime.com. They are the sponsor of the Clock Dodgers podcast. If you play daily fantasy sports and you're not playing No Halftime, I can guarantee that you're not playing um, the most – I don't know. I don't know how to say this. It's the most different – of any daily fantasy sports that you're playing. It's the most unique. Uh, I personally feel like it gives you the best opportunity to win money if you do things right. You know what I mean? Because you don't have to gamble on all these guys hitting and using all these salary caps and all these crazy things. You just pick players. You just do players. Tom Brady versus Russell Wilson, straight up. You know, um, Deshaun Jackson versus Larry Fitzgerald. You just do these challenges um, and... It could be against your friends, your family, ways to settle, you know, scores and beef that you have with each other. If you want to do it for free, you can, but everything is better with money involved, right? Um, so what I'm doing for you guys is I'm giving you the promo code CLOCK, C-L-O-C-K. When you sign up and make your first deposit, you'll get a bonus on your first deposit. What can I say, folks? What can I say? Do it. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And anytime, like I said, money is involved, things get get fun. They get interesting. <laughs> and like I said, we have episodes um, that we talk about the, that we that we give like tips and stuff for no halftime. If you have any questions, you can always um, hit me up directly. 
You guys know I love talking uh, sports with you guys. So if you ever have any questions, you can always just hit me up directly and we can really discuss it that way as well. Uh, I, I enjoy talking about it. What can I say? So nohalftime.com, again, the uh, best sponsor of the Clock Dodgers podcast around. That's that's a shot at all you other sponsors. Well, you know what I'm saying. If, if you want to sponsor, hit me up. It, the easiest way is on Twitter or Instagram. Just DM me. Um, but, uh, they, they've been, they've been with us since the beginning. So it's hard to, I got nothing to bad. I got nothing bad to say about them. If I had something bad, I would tell you guys, I really would. If I, if there was something where I was like, these guys aren't receptive to my ideas. They're not listening to the customer. I mean, literally I have nothing bad to say. I challenge you to find something bad to say. I challenge you, but you got to sign up first. You got to sign up. You got to use the promo code clock dot, you know, clock C L O C K. Um, if you don't do all that, then I don't want to hear your complaints. I don't want to hear it because it's not it's not going to be it's not going to be accepted. If you guys want to support the podcast, you can always go uh, to Patreon as well. Patreon is a beautiful way for you to help sponsor the podcast. Um, if you go there and you can search, uh, you, I think you can search Cloud Dodgers. Just search Cloud Dodgers on there, and you will find um, a way to you know to support us. However, however it is that you can, uh, there's rewards and stuff on there for the different levels that you go to as far as you know if you give so much you get this you give so much you get that it's it's a, just a creative way to, to to support people who are doing creative projects for you and whatnot so i highly recommend you check that out um, i really appreciate it anything you could do uh, patreon.com slash clock dodgers um i really appreciate it guys other than that clockdodgers.com where you get all the new unique content from a lot of great writers i have people hitting me up every single day well, not every day. Okay, let's not exaggerate. But I have people hitting me up all the time who are interested in contributing, who who think it's a really cool format because we got a lot of great contributors who are making great content, different content, unique content. We got a lot of people writing about sports right now. If you're interested in other things, please hit me up. Entertainment, TV, comedy, movies, fitness, literally anything. Uh, we're always looking for new people to contribute that way. It's just a fun platform. It's a fun platform to join the Cloud Dodgers family. If you're just listening to this podcast for the first time ever because you thought Ian was on, he's an amazing dude, you wanted to hear it, please subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app. It, it's, it's, it's monumental for us. When you do that, I can't explain to you how much it helps us. I cannot explain to you. If you have friends and family who have iPhones, you can grab them, subscribe to the podcast, tell them, listen to this. Just give it a listen. I promise you'll enjoy it. Then they have Android. Subscribe to the different Android apps. I'm telling you, it's the, it's the biggest thing you could do for us is to subscribe to the podcast. Don't just listen. Don't just stream them. Down, download the podcast. Subscribe to it. Um, leave a review if you want to leave one. If you know, if you're feeling froggy, do it. If you're not, it's it's cool. It's cool. Whatever. It's whatever. Um, as usual, guys, follow us on at Clock Dodgers on Twitter, Instagram, all the different platforms. If you have any feedback, suggestions, questions, uh, anything you want to talk about, hit me up. Uh, again, patreon.com slash clock dodgers. There's going to be exclusive content and stuff on there. Just kind of kicking it off now to get things going there. So I uh, highly recommend you guys do that. Other than that, guys, I think we really got it covered. Ian, Ian dropped some some bombs on us. So I, I'm going to let you guys absorb those. Future episodes coming. Lots of different guests. I have some new guests coming on that haven't been on before. I have returning guests who have been on before. 
all different kinds of content. I love you guys. As always, be kind, be great, keep dodging. Visit clockdodgers.com for more unique content. Connect with us now by following at Clock Dodgers on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope.